0: Raise your hand if you are here with someone, uh, someone you're dating, or someone, someone you love, someone you love romantically, right? TEDx Huntsville. I want us to show the world how passionate Huntsville can be. Grab that person, or even if there's just someone cute in your aisle, grab that person and give them a great big kiss right now. Go. <clears throat> All right, right. It's ideas were spreading, people, calm down, calm down. <clears throat> we're gonna switch gears a little bit now, and we're gonna ask you to cast your mind back to a darker time in reference to your love, a time when you were with your ex. Ugh, boo, I want you to think about that person, and I want you to think about how crazy you were when you were with them, how irrational you were, the excuses that you made, the lies you told, the way you excuse their behavior and that one thing you did that one time, right? <laughs> I want you to think about that, really visualize it. The reason we're gonna talk about money today through the vehicle of love is because love is a vehicle that speaks to us. We have all been in love, whether it was requited or unrequited, and it sticks with us, it's very, very visceral. We don't just like to talk about love, though we like to sing about love. Since Billboard started keeping track in 1890, there have been 3,348 chart-topping songs about love, with love in the title. To answer Kermit the Frog's question, there have been 42 songs about rainbows, and there have been exactly zero songs about psychological bias in financial (laughs) decision-making. And that is because We are loath to talk about how silly we are with money. We like to talk about money as an abstraction. What would you do if a million dollars fell from the sky and wouldn't it be cool to drive a Bugatti, right? But we don't like to look at our bank accounts to the point that many banks are now taking the fund total off of the bottom right corner of online checking because they're finding that's the only way they really get people to look at their account is if you can't see how much money you don't have. In the wake of the financial crisis, there was a lot of blame to go around, right? Was it Wall Street? Was it Main Street? Was it hedge fund managers? Uh, Was it everyday Americans? But I'm here today to settle the score once and for all, and we're gonna tell you here at TEDx Huntsville just who has been to blame for all of this insanity. And it's you, and it's you, and it's you, and it's me. Because friends, financial markets don't exist in nature. No one has ever picked a perfectly ripe credit default swap, or unearthed just the right moist little hedge fund, right? We are the problem. We dream them up, and then we screw them up. So we're gonna talk about how we can do a little bit less of that today by talking about the common languages of love and finance and the behavioral biases that they share, and we're gonna talk about four of them today. The first that we're gonna talk about is, I won't ask for a poll here, but one I imagine many of you are familiar with, called the I can change them or fixer upper bias, right? We watched a really compelling video earlier about the power of change. And indeed, so much of, of what is good about humanity is rooted in the desire to make positive changes, to reach out our hand to people in need, or to help make the world a better place. But while this is a remarkably fantastic impulse to have in many arenas of your life, I would suggest to you that love and money are not the place to take this idea, right? But that doesn't stop us. And just like we try and date every fixer-upper within a 15-mile radius of Brigham Young University, say, for instance, a friend of mine, we also also bring this decision-making to our financial lives. In fact, I wanna talk about a recent study in which people were asked to buy lottery tickets. In the first scenario, they were, given, uh, they were given any old number, right, one through 50, and they were asked what they would pay if someone else chose the lottery ticket for them, one through 50, 2% chance of winning. Well, if the people decided to pay $1.97, they thought that was the fair price for a lottery ticket that had been randomly assigned to them. But what about when they were given the choice to personally intervene and pick their lucky number? The odds remained the same, still 2%, still 1 in 50, but when people were allowed to try and change the process by picking their own number, they were willing to pay almost $9 for the lottery ticket. Why is it that we are four times more willing to pay for a random thing? Uh, we think we can control it, we think we could change it just like we thought we could control our ex and we couldn't. The next tendency we have is to overinvest in things that we use every day, thinking that somehow magically our own enthusiasm for the brand and our own participation with that brand is going to buoy the stock price, right? Think about the Facebook IPO that recently happened and which has been one of the most calamitous ones in, in recent history. Well, Facebook told us all this was coming, right? Facebook told us that they had slowing growth. Facebook told us that people were shifting over to the less profitable mobile platform, and they told us that they had decreasing profit margins. Add to this that Facebook stock was trading at 400% of other sexy high-tech stocks like Google uh, and Apple, and you get a really clear picture of what's going on. They told us, and we ignored them because we like totally check our Facebook like five times a day, right? Finally, the last piece of the I can change them bias is the belief that if we work for a company, they're headed big places, right? So I, as HR generalist three at Coca-Cola company, ought to invest in said company, because I'm all that stands between Coke and financial ruin, right? I will single-handedly lift you up, Coke. You're welcome, right? These are all things we do. These are all things we do that are rooted in this common bias of I can change them. The second bias I wanna talk about is called this time it's different bias. You can see Liz Taylor already, can't you, right? The this time it's different bias. We've all had the experience, right, of thinking that this time would be better, this time it's different. Liz Taylor had that experience eight times with seven guys, right? I'm not judging, I'm just saying, right? The statistic about US divorces is a little bit misleading, right? We always hear that half of all divorces, or half of all marriages, end in divorce but actually um, a decent bit less than half of first marriages end in divorce, but 67% of second marriages and over 70% of third marriages do end in divorce. When psychologists like myself look at this, what they find is that the tendency is for people to rebound into a new relationship without having adequately addressed the underlying problems that that caused the first fracture, right? We believe that even if nothing about us changes, that this time is different and that this time is special. Psychologists call this new era thinking. And the first new era example of great new era thinking occurred in one of the biggest and most shocking financial bubbles on history, uh, which occurred about 400 years ago in the Netherlands. At this time, a single commodity commanded 10 times the average salary of a Dutch worker. This same commodity commodity was regularly traded for up to 12 acres of farmland and sometimes even single family dwellings. And that commodity is a single tulip bulb. Another example of this is seen 300 years later in America in the mid-1920s. We see the economic prognosticators of the day saying that there is nothing to suggest that anything but prosperity would be the way of the world in the United States for the foreseeable future. Sure, calamities had happened in the past, but this time was different. This time was special. It's easy for us to think about this as an antiquated notion and something that our silly, dumb ancestors took part of. We would never trade our house for a tulip bulb, but we see these sorts of things at play even as recently as the last four years and even as recently as the tech bubble that occurred at the at the turn of the century. I want you to look here at the valuation of two toy stores, right? Two toy stores, one a mainstay from, from back in the day, Toys R Us, and the other, eToys.com, which was wrapped up in this new era thinking of, of the turn of the century, which said the internet was going to revolutionize everything uh, so much so that sort of the underlying financials were, were less important. eToys.com had $30 million of annual sales, profits in the red, but a market capitalization or total stock value of $8 billion. Toys R Us on the other hand had $11.2 billion in sales, nine figure profitability, and only three quarters of the market cap. Okay, we get sucked into this and we think that this time is special and this time is different. But when I find myself entering into this trap of thinking that things are different this time, I like to jog my memory by reminding myself that we're only a couple hundred years removed from the notion that women's reproductive organs would atrophy if they got too much book learning. (coughs) (laughs) I want to talk to you next about something called Prince Charming Bias. Prince charming bias is this idea that a high impact, low probability event will happen and sweep us off our feet, as it were. will make all of our romantic or financial problems go away. And to see just how deeply ingrained this is into our romantic ideal, I wanna look at a couple of princes from fairy tales, right? The first one here is Prince Philip who slays dragons and does all manner of heroic deeds uh, to sweep his sleeping beauty off her feet and get her to wake up, right? Second prince here is Cinderella's man, who after one hot hot night on the dance floor, uh, sees fit to traverse the whole county side until he has found his lady and saved her from a life of servitude. And then finally, I wanna talk about Snow White's man, who uh, rescues her from an old hag, as well as having to live with seven short dudes with really one-dimensional personalities, right? Notice though, notice though that I did not mention the names of the second two princes, and why is that? They don't have names. (laughs) They're, (laughs) they're, They're referred to generically as Prince Charming. But the reason that we refer to them generically is because who they are doesn't matter to us one bit. What they represent matters to us a great deal. That something benevolent is gonna come in and make everything all right. This is very much, this Prince Charming bias is very much at play in our everyday financial lives. In the one week run up to the most recent Mega Millions jackpot, Americans spent $1.5 billion on lottery tickets, which is the equivalent of four and a half lottery tickets for every man, woman, and child in America, right? Which seems harmless enough until you consider who is impacted by this Prince Charming bias. Until you consider that the poorest counties in North Carolina were the most likely to be represented among lottery players. When you consider that 28% of Americans make less than $40,000 a year, but 54% of lottery players make less than $40,000 a year. And when you consider that educational attainment and tendency to play the lottery are inversely related, so that day laborers with, uh, without a high school diploma are the most likely parties to play and those with advanced degrees like a master's or a PhD are the least likely to play. So those who can least afford it are most likely to be swept up in this bias. But I don't want you to think that I'm Speaking ill of you wishing on a star here, friends. So let's talk about the probability that a white knight's gonna ride up and uh, park his steed in your driveway, right? Let's talk about that. You are 24 times more likely to be killed by your state than you are to win mega millions. And you are actually three times more likely to go to death row and have a last minute pardon by the governor than you are to win mega millions. you are further nine times more likely to be crushed to death by your tv than you are to win mega millions but if i asked you to bet on any of these things you would laugh me out of the room why then do we not laugh when we're asked to buy lottery tickets but what if your prince does come what if you do win the lottery let's talk about it well 32 percent of lottery, win- lottery winners gained a great deal of weight reported no positive effect on happiness, and 44% were broke within five years. So, if we went back to the magical forest and did a follow-up on Snow White, the movie might be called Snow White 2, Sad, Fat, and Broke. The, la- the last behavioral bias that I wanna talk uh, talk about is called, I just can't quit you bias, okay? In 2002, let's get serious. In 2002, one of the most serious and damaging bad decisions ever made in, in America occurred, which was that my then girlfriend broke up with me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't eat, then I did nothing but eat. I couldn't sleep and then I did nothing but sleep, right? And probably most of us have been there. We've been there to know just how painful it is to break up with someone and to be broken up with. Well, some researchers, some psychologists set out to try and define uh, whether or not the song was true, right? Is breaking up really hard to do? Gotta love scientists. So they studied the brain and they showed 15 people. They showed 15 people pictures of their exes and then did brain scans on them. And they found that three areas of the brain were activated. The first was the reward or pleasure centers. The second was the center that loads onto addiction or craving. And the last was the one that loads onto physical pain. This is a really, really big deal. But as... uh, people in the humanities like Emily Dickinson could have told us long before the brain scan parting is all we know of heaven and all we need of hell we hate losing we hate losing and we hate breaking up twice as much as we like a similar as we are happy about a similarly sized positive event and this plays out all the time in our economic lives. Consider the gambler down a couple of hundred bucks who can't quit the table, can't leave the table because to quit would be tantamount to giving up. Consider the friend you have that can't get out of the bad relationship for the same reasons. Or consider someone who buys a stock at $10, could have sold it at 975, but rides it all the way to the bottom because they can't stand a sure loss. In closing, I wanna, I wanna temper my thoughts on rationality a little bit. Blaise Pascal has a quote that I love that says, the heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. And frankly, the same could be said of the way that you spend your money. But I think if we can get past the pain and look and let love teach us a thing or two, maybe we'd find that our ex-boyfriend or our ex-girlfriend wasn't so bad, and maybe we still have a thing or two to learn from them. Thank you.